you can empower the person about the knowledge, you know, about themselves, how their brain works, what's the best way to work. But then you're still going to go into your workplace or you're going to go into your family environment and you still need to coexist among people because in order to thrive, we need people. There's an event and then what happens is you have to figure out how to respond. That is very different than COVID where the crisis kept evolving. It's like you didn't have one event and say, okay, how are we going to deal with it? What happens is you're dealing with the event and then the next day something changes in the event. But she started telling me stories. And for the first time I heard how when she was 10, she saw a 13, 14 year old boy being beaten by soldiers. And that was the first time in her life she understood the meaning of the word hate. And I'm sitting there at the kitchen table and hearing this and feeling like somebody just kicked me in the gut. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is a storyteller, which bodes very well for this podcast, and she is the author of a really wonderful book called A Land Twice Promised. Now, I have a handful of books that I've read over the course of my life that I would turn around and call my favourites. I'm thinking about Wild Swans by Jung Chang, The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer, and I would add in this book as well there. It is It absolutely blew me away. And straight away, I thought, okay, how do I reach out to this person and get her onto my podcast? It's an amazing story, as you would expect from a storyteller. And it also has so many takeaways, particularly so much overlap with what we discuss and talk about on this podcast. The book tells how the author was brought up in Israel and was given a specific view of the situation there and a view of the Palestinian people as a result of her upbringing, her own experiences and the views of those around her. And then those views were challenged when she moved to the United States and made good friends with someone who'd grown up very nearby to her, but in a Palestinian community and had completely different perceptions of the same events. And then it goes on about to talk about how she processed those different perspectives and then went on to share them as a storyteller and the way she shared the different sides of the story. So our theme for our conversation today is how we respond when our worldview gets challenged. And that really is what this boils down to. And I've quoted my guest already in presentations I've delivered because it had such a strong impact on me. And I think it's such an important message that reflects, as I said, a lot of what we've discussed. So Noah Baum, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast and for writing A Land Twice Promised. Thank you, Andy, so much. Wow. What an endorsement. I'm really grateful. <laughs> I, I love the book and I have recommended it to so many people since. So I was trying to work out how to approach this conversation. And I thought I could just say, tell us what's in the book and sit back and let you tell your story. But we'll break it down a little bit into various parts of your story. And then I want to sort of bring that into context for how people can use that from the podcast. So let's start with your experiences of Israel as you grew up, your perspective. So what happened around you as you grew up and, and how did that frame the way you saw the world around you? Well, I think like everybody, you grow up with the reality around you as as being the reality with a capital T. We know what we know. We know what we're surrounded by. I come from a family that managed to escape the Holocaust, just barely. My mother's family, her father was wealthy enough to manage to get certificates to enter the British Mandate Palestine at the time. They were giving only a very limited number of entry certificates for Eastern European Jews. Her father was a Polish-German Jew, and so he managed to get those certificates for his parents, his wife, and his four children. But my grandmother came from a very, very large Orthodox family, and she had something like, you know, 40 cousins, five siblings and their parent and their spouses and their children. So she had dozens and dozens and dozens of family members that have been exterminated by the Nazis. My father came from Czechoslovakia and his 
father was a very ardent Zionist. He was a chemist. He kind of saw the writing on the wall in 1933 when Hitler came to power, and he started relentlessly working on getting those permits to escape. And in 1939, they left Prague exactly three weeks before Hitler entered. Wow. So it was kind of barely made it. And my father was 17 at the time. So I grew up with these ghosts. As I write in the book, my grandmother never talked about anything. She came from a very wealthy middle-class background. And her husband, who I'm finding out, you know, nobody talks about him, my grandfather, but I think he was mentally unstable and abused her terribly, but he lost everything. So he owned half of what Tel Aviv is on today, like the Dizengoff Center, the center of Tel Aviv were all land that he had with a partner that had orchards, that had orange orchards. And he lost it in all in 1936. And so she had to raise four children in, in real poverty, never, ever talked about it. Her son, my mother's brother, who was the light of her life and as you saw in the book, a lot of it centers around it. We grew up with this mythological figure of her brother who was killed is when he was 22 years old in the 1948 war. Then she had a sister who died when she was 23. And for years and years and years and years, we knew that she died of a lung disease. That was the family narrative. And it was only decades later in my late 40s that I discovered that Judith, who was 15 at the time that her brother was killed, never recovered from his loss. And after eight years of struggle with depression, at the age of 23, took her own life. My grandmother never talked about that. My mother never talked about the suicide. You know, it's kind of a taboo. But the specter of her brother was central to our family. So I grew up with all these ghosts and I grew up with all that background and I grew up with all the mythology of, it's mythology, but it's also the reality that we are fighting for our existence and that we are surrounded by enemies who want to annihilate us. And my first war that I remember was when I was nine years old, the 1967 war. I remember it as a time of fear and excitement, you know, because all of a sudden all the neighbors lived together for four nights, five five days in in one room in the shelter, in the furnace room. I was with my best friend, my neighbor from upstairs, sleeping in the same bed. So it was there was all this excitement. And of course our parents protected us. My father brought down his eight millimeter movie camera, we watched silent Mickey Mouse movies. My mother made us decorate the room with poems for peace. And so I would, I would say I grew up knowing that we are good. We have suffered. We want peace and our enemies don't want us here. And our enemies don't want peace. They want to throw us into the sea. So I grew up surrounded by that. And there's a lot more, but, you know, (laughs) that's in the book. But it's kind of like these things that form your worldview and all all through school, you know, and then there was another war in 73 when I was already 16. So you you experience the the unity of, of, you know, the national spirit, the unity. Israel, as you may know, does not have a volunteer army. It has a citizen's army. So everybody goes to the army. And I started my army career or my army service as I was recruited to the secret service. And I think that's where some cracks in my worldview started to appear. But you push them aside because it's very hard to to say, I'm wrong, (laughs) or my parents are wrong, or my nation is wrong, or there are dark sides here that are not being brought to light. You know, that's impossible, especially for an 18-year-old. So my journey to start discovering that maybe there's other narratives, maybe there's another way of looking at reality, maybe everything that I was taught was not the truth with a capital T, but one aspect of the truth. That was a long journey that I think the book talks about. 
Well, let's go on to that in a little while, but I just want to explore a couple of the things that you said and go a bit deeper into a couple of those stages first. So the first thing is that you use this term ghosts, which I think is a really interesting term. I would be interested in your take on how what ghosts we all deal with, because from what you've shared, you've got your personal or family ghosts. You talk about your brother as the most obvious example. Sorry, my mother's brother. Your mother's brother. Sorry, your uncle. Sorry, your your uncle. Then you have your cultural or community ghosts, and that goes right the way back to the Holocaust. And actually, for the Jewish people, go a lot further back than that, obviously, as well, right the way back throughout the history of the Jewish people. So that over millennia, let alone centuries, has created this image, this vision of... The Jewish people use the term of the chosen people. I'm probably not the only religion to do so. About the amount of oppression that they suffered, you think about the the slavery in Egypt as as a the the obvious example that springs to mind, and then in modern world that the Holocaust is the most obvious one as well. So, how much of what built your perception was driven by cultural ghosts? How much by family ghosts, and how much by your own experience? I don't think there's any way to answer that because I don't think we have any idea. But I do believe, and there's a lot of research coming out now, that we carry ancestral trauma in our DNA. So we are already born to some sort of a a, a D- DNA pre-programming that already responds to the world with great anxiety. You know, we carry it unconsciously. I will just tell you that I had nightmares as a child of Nazis coming to take us away. Now, where did I get that? Nobody talked about it. You know, nobody actually, my grandmother never, she would refer to them. She said, the Nazi, you know, she was always spitting and against the evil eye and saying, may their name be erased. The Nazis and the Arabs, right? They took her son. So anytime that name was mentioned, that was the reaction. Ah, they took everybody away. They took everybody away. That That's what I grew up with. Now, my mother talked more about things and, you know, on a Holocaust Memorial Day, you would hear stories. But that was later when I was older I cannot explain how pre-television, you know, as a five and a six and a seven-year-old, I had nightmares. As a nine-year-old, when we were in the shelter during the Six-Day War, I remember waking up screaming that the Nazis are coming and my father calming me down and saying, you know, where did, you know, he was like completely perplexed. Where did you get Nazis in your head? I don't know. I don't have an explanation all my life. You know, this is a confession. To this day, when I make food, when I cook, there's always this thought goes in my head and I see the hunger and I see people who don't have it. It just comes through my head. I have no control over it. You know how lucky I am that I have food. And yeah, it, I really can only explain that it was passed on through my blood. <laughs> it, it, it's such an important point because... If we're looking at how we respond when our worldview gets challenged, we need to understand where that worldview comes from and where it originates. And, you know, I gave my very untrained perspective on what that is in terms of the personal, familial and the cultural ghosts, to use your term. But then if you're adding into that, and I don't know the science behind it, the transference of DNA through DNA of of trauma, which I've heard elsewhere as well, when we expect ourselves or other people to be responsive to sensible argument, we have to understand the different factors that are at play there, don't we? I think it's really fundamental to understand that so much of our responses come from so much that we are unaware of. Just to be aware that we are unaware, just to accept we carry so much shadow. Yeah. Jung used that term, but it's really the term to describe all the unconscious. And, and we have no control over that. A lot of that has been determined before we were born. And a lot of it has been determined by our education and our society and, and our family and our circumstances and our economical circumstances. So there's so much wrapped in it. I think just to know that that is so and that our understanding of the world and our understanding of ourselves 
is so very limited, is so very narrow. I, I always think if we had a little more humbleness around that, maybe we would have less conflict with each other. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's what I want to explore with you. Let's have a look. We talked about <clears throat> what your perspective, perceptions were. Let's go specific now because this goes to the heart of your story in the book. How did you see Palestinian people as you grew up and even as a young adult? Well, I think as a child in the early 60s, as a Jewish child in the early 60s in Israel, I was a devout groupie of a series of books called Chassamba. It's a, an acronym for Chavurat Sod Muchlat Bechlet, the absolute secret uh, secret society of total secrecy, something like that. <laughs> you know, this is impossible to translate. Anyway, Chassamba and Danny Dean, the invisible boy, those were our heroes. So Chassamba was a group of six boys and two girls that uncovered international conspiracies and caught Russian spies, and they fought the British mandate and the Arabs. But to be honest, their main fight was against a despicable gangster called Elimelech Zolkin, which roughly translates to, uh, you know, imagine somebody who's like complete pure evil, like the Joker in Batman, and his name is Irvin Schmuckenfarb, <laughs> something like that. So they were our heroes. And the Arabs were always depicted in those books as slow, stupid, mean, primitive, uh, carrying knives. You know, you always could outwit them, right? And these kids would outwit them and save the nation of Israel. Uh, so that was roughly the image I had of Arabs. And after the 67 war, of course, I was never taught to hate them. So I have very strong memories of going to the old city, going through the market and seeing Arabs for the first time. And I still have this visceral memory of my grandmother gripping my hand so tight. It's kind of like the fear permeated that grip into my arm. I thought they were just so fascinating. They were always smiling and there were just these amazing smells and colors. So I have memories like that. I have memories of my father was a professor at the university and he had many students who were Palestinian, but you know, they were Arab citizens of Israel. They were the Palestinians that stayed in 48 and did not escape or were transferred out. And you know, I remember we were invited to one of his students' wedding up in a beautiful little village, Daburia, near the Tavor Mountain in the north. I was very young. I think I was five or six. And I just have the memory of the amazing food and everybody, you know, all the girls and the women just hugging us and uh, just a lot of, you know, and sleeping there in this strange room. So it's not like all the images of Arabs were threatening or bad. And I remember driving you know, when we would travel from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, there would be Abu Ghosh, which is a very, very large, mainly Christian village right outside of Jerusalem. And my mother would always say, what are they complaining about? Look how rich they are. They all have villas, right? But to be honest, it was in the periphery. It wasn't the main thing that occupied my life growing up. Yeah? But it's kind of always there. There's the enemies, there's the wars. But we have no choice and our boys are good and our boys are moral and our boys are the heroes. And of course, the biggest hero is my uncle who sacrificed his life and died for our nation. So I could live in a free Jewish state. We'll move the story on a little bit and it, and it keeps to this point. It, it, it expands this point a little bit. You moved to the U.S. and you met a woman and you found out that she was a Palestinian Israeli or um no no uh, not she was yeah she was from the outskirts of jerusalem east jerusalem yeah but my beginnings of the change of perspective like i said the crack started in the army and then at university when i was at university my yes. worldview started shifting because of events that i experienced and, and saw there were some professors from beers at university that were invited to speak and my friends were part of this arab and jewish political group and they invited me, and and then I saw the right wing students attack with a knuckle duster and broken Coke bottles, glass bottles, attack, attack us in 
in the next day, it showed up in the newspaper, violence erupted at Tel Aviv camp, university campus. And I'm like, but that's not true. That's not what it, I, I was there. It's not true. And my friends were laughing because they've been much more seasoned political activists. And I never wanted to be part of politics. And it was the first time that it occurred to me that maybe what I'm reading in the paper is not the truth or not all the truth. And it was a huge shock to my system. It was a huge shock to my system. So then I started being more active, but I was always kind of one foot in, one foot out. You know, I really just wanted to be an actress. I, I wanted to be an artist. The politics kind of scared me and I didn't want to get involved. And, and then I took a, a class on political theater with two professors and our assignment was to analyze primary sources from Germany between 1933 and 1936. So we were looking at people's journals. We were looking at letters to the editor in the newspaper. We were looking at newspaper articles. We were looking at letters between people, between family, you know, like we were looking at that and we were creating some sort of monologues from it. But that was another shock to my system because the wording was identical to everything that I heard around me in the Israeli discourse, identical. And this is 1980 80 or 81. The only word you needed to change instead of Jews, you would put Arabs or Palestinians, and you would not need to change one single word. And that was a very big shock to my system because the Nazis were the monsters and all the Germans were monsters. And all of a sudden, oh, and the Germans were made of people, like all the people around me, and they were responding in the exact same way that I'm hearing in the news here. And that was a huge shock. Yeah, I've had the same feeling recently when I hear the way we talk in the UK about refugees, for example, asylum seekers, and the otherness of people. I yes. think there's so much you can learn from history. And it's all based on understanding only your perspective and not uh, and not trying to understand that other person and their environment, their context, yeah. um, and whether this it's German people about, in the 30s. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and it was so shocking, you know, then when I met my Palestinian friend to hear the experiences of her family. And uh, her mother told a story about how when she was in school, they had a teacher come from Ireland to teach them and had first checked to see if they had tails. And and I said to her, wait a minute, but that's what they were saying about Jews. And she said, no, 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 that's what they were saying about Arabs and that they smell. I'm like, but that's what the Nazis said about Jews. She said, but no, but that's what people are saying about Arabs. So that was terrifying. We hope that you are enjoying this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Don't forget, you can download your copy of Andy's book, Connected Leadership, from Amazon and other leading online bookstores. So tell us about how you became friends with this Palestinian lady, how that came about, your initial reaction to each other, and then how the relationship grew. Well, we met on the playground. I was part of a little babysitting co-op. I lived in student housing. I followed my American husband after having, you know, a career and work and friends and family and language and culture. And I came to this place. See Davis for his PhD studies. And it was 1990. I came when my friends were walking around with little boxes of mask, gas masks in case Saddam Hussein attacks us with mustard gas. And I come to this silent, quiet place with just the chirping of cicadas. And the biggest political struggle in the history of Davis has been to save the toads from being squashed when they cross <laughs> the highway. And I thought it was a joke and it was real. There was a big, big political fight and they built a tunnel underneath the highway to save the toads so that they could get to their ancestral wetlands on the other side. And I remember my heart just going, oh, I come from a place where we're not as successful as saving the lives of humans as they are successful here preserving the rights of toads. And, and just to clarify... It's a to, huge shock. And just to clarify, for listeners that don't know, you'd moved to America, so UC Davis is in the States. Sorry, and yes. I, I moved and, to and, California. And I also need to know, did they put a sign up for the toads so they knew which way to go into the tunnel? Well, the toads knew. <laughs> the toads knew. But right near the post office, there's the beautiful little 
wooden house. It's called Toad Hollow or something like that. And that's where the toads start their journey under the tunnel. So I come to this place and I had my first baby and I was really miserable. And I joined this babysitting co-op, a whole bunch of moms. We lived in student housing. And one day, and we had these potlucks together. And one day we're standing there in a potluck and I see this woman. Well, the truth is that when I first saw her, she was pregnant and I already had a little baby. And then she had her baby. And immediately the minute I looked at her, I knew she comes from where I come from. I just knew it. She had a familiar beauty. And then later, you know, I kind of walked up to her and I asked her what what the name of her baby is, what mine. So we start mom stuff. We started mom stuff and we were part of this co-op. And, you know, when she had her second baby born, I brought in some tahini, which is, you know, a Middle Eastern food that Israelis and Palestinians share We helped each other. You know, it was like this mom relationship. We established, I established very quickly on that I'm not somebody who supports the occupation. So that was pretty clearly established at the very beginning. But we didn't talk about the situation back home. We didn't talk about a lot of, we didn't talk about our childhood or anything. You know, mom stuff. We were moms. And then in 2000, I went to my very first conference of the National Storytelling Association in the United States. I presented a workshop there. And I took a workshop with two very prominent storytellers, Elizabeth Ellis and Lauren Nimi. And the title of the workshop was The Importance of Telling Difficult Stories. And I remember sitting in that workshop and realizing that I just tell folk tales. I don't ever tell personal stories. And I certainly do not tell any story that has any relationship with the complicated situation of where I grew up or where I come from. And I didn't think I'm capable of of telling personal stories. And I didn't think an American audience, I, I would be able to explain to an American audience my complex reality, let alone my completely crazy mother. So I don't do that. But I also remember coming out of that workshop and realizing that if I don't take risks, I'm never going to grow as an artist. And I invited Lauren Nimi to Davis to give a workshop. And one of the perks of organizing a workshop is that you get a free coaching session. (laughs) (laughs) And thus started our relationship. And he became my mentor. And he started really encouraging me to tell personal stories. And I'm just, no, you know, I don't know. And he said, I said to him, I'm scared. And he said, well, how can uh, somebody who was in the army, who fought in wars, who um, uh, shot, you know, rifles, be scared of telling a story? And I started to laugh. I mean, what do you think about shooting a rifle? I've never touched a gun in my life except for basic training where I closed my eyes to, to do the requisite three times to shoot at the target. And the only time I was close to a war was in the six-day war when we all were in the furnace room with all the neighbors and we heard the bombs days and night. And he said, well, that's a story an American audience needs to hear. And I thought to myself, but there's no story there. Yeah, we were down there. Yeah, it was a little scary. It was noisy. And And then I thought, wait a minute. I've known this woman now for seven years. She grew up in Jerusalem. She grew up not five miles from where I grew up in East Jerusalem. I never knew what it was like for her as a Palestinian. What, all of a sudden I realized, well, she she was in that same war. Did she sleep with all the neighbors in the furnace room? Did Palestinians even have bomb shelters? And to my great shame, I realized that I know nothing. And I called her up and I thought I had this brilliant idea. And, and at the time, I haven't seen her for a year because they moved out of student housing and she had her third baby. But I thought I had this brilliant idea. Why don't we each tell our stories, our memories of 1967 as little girls? on both sides of the divide, and we could do a show together at the university, other venues. And when she heard that, she started to laugh. She said, no, I'm I'm an engineer. I don't get up and talk in front of people unless I'm giving a lecture. (laughs) But she gave me permission to come over and, and ask questions and talk. And that's when my life started to change. All of a sudden, I started asking questions and I started listening because I realized I don't know anything. I really started to listen. And for the first time in my life, I heard what it actually feels like to be a Palestinian growing up under Israeli occupation. And of course, she said she would never have told me those stories had we not had those seven years of building a relationship, which I think is very important to remember. But she started telling me stories. And for the first time, I heard how when she was 10, 
she saw a 13, 14 year old boy being beaten by soldiers. And that was the first time in her life she understood the meaning of the word hate. And I'm sitting there at the kitchen table and hearing this and feeling like somebody just kicked me in the gut because those soldiers that terrified and haunted her childhood were our boys, our symbol of security, our heroes, our heroes, the, the heroes I grew up with. Everyone who turns 18 and goes to the army, including my brother, suddenly my people are the them. And it was very hard. It was very painful and it was very hard. And my instinct was to start arguing. Um, you know, they're not bad. My instinct was just to jump up and start defending my people. But I had to push that down. I had to take a deep breath because she was finally telling me her stories after a lot of resistance. Uh, and so it went and we started telling our stories. You know, I started listening to her. I came back the next day and I started recording those stories because I just felt something, this is huge. Because I noticed that I'm not just listening to the story of a Palestinian. I'm listening to the story of my friend and my heart is open the way you listen to a story of, of your friend. And I was feeling so much empathy and so much pain for what she had gone through as well. And I thought, okay, I have to start recording these conversations. And then eventually we started, you know, we started arguing. You know, I, I would say, uh, I would say something that was the truth, right? What I grew up with, what I know from history, from my family, it's the truth with a capital T. And she looks at me and she says, but that's not how it was. That's Zionist propaganda. That's not how it was at all. And then she tells me her truth with a capital T, which is what she knows from her family and history books. And I listen and I'm like, but that's not how it was. That's Arab propaganda. And we find ourselves arguing. And then she says, oh, look at us. We're getting defensive. And we laughed because we were friends. And I got up to, I don't know, make a soft-boiled egg for the other kids so she could take care of the baby. And, and we continued to talk. And there was never a moment where I felt I cannot talk to this person. There were many moments where I felt like, oh gosh, it would be so much easier to just say, to stop listening and just say, oh, oh yeah, well, the Palestinians, those Palestinians, you know, just put, put her in the them box, which is how I lived all my life, right? So that temptation was huge all the time, but I had to remind myself that I was the one who wanted to hear this and I was the one who asked her and I was the one who wants to know. And that experience was so powerful that, I felt like I had to do something with it. And going to demonstrations always left me just angry and empty. And I thought maybe there's a better use of me and my talents as a storyteller. And so I, with the help of Lauren, my mentor, created a one-woman show based on these conversations where I tell our stories and I tell the stories of both our mothers that echo these contradicting national narratives of our people. And very quickly when I started performing it, it became clear that my story is not just about two moms meeting on the playground and it's not even about Israelis and Palestinians, that my story is about the power of storytelling and the power of listening to the story of the other, even and especially when they're different and when their story is difficult to hear. And I started taking this learning from my experience, and I created a model that I started using in workshops in many different applications, many different settings of bridging across differences. So not just political, but in workplaces and in communities and in interfaith groups and in schools. And then I was giving a keynote at a conference and this man comes up to me and he says, um, you know, your work sounds really, really interesting. I'm a book publisher and I would really like to ask if you would like to write a book. My name is Christopher Robbins. And I started laughing. I said, oh, you mean like Winnie the Pooh? And he said, oh yeah, my parents were great fans. <laughs> and thus, um, I got a book contract and I wrote a book. <laughs> I want to explore in a second the experience of your audiences and readers, how they received the stories you were telling, because I know that that wasn't always necessarily the easiest, the smoothest ride. Before we go into that, I just want to share something from my own experience that, that you've brought up as a memory. So when you talk about the truth with a capital T, I spoke in Siberia 
in 2014, and it was maybe three weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine the first time. And I was quite nervous about being asked when I'm on stage about my opinion of, of what was happening. Luckily, that didn't happen, but people came up to me outside the conference and asked in general one-to-one conversation about, you know, my pers- perspective. And we had really interesting adult conversations about two different perspectives. And what they shared with me wasn't what the media was telling them in Russia. And I had a later experience, which was probably more related to that, but which I'll share in a second. But it was actually first-hand family experience or second-hand mm. family, their family mm. in Russian-populated areas of Crimea, Ukraine. And uh, it taught me that our media in the UK would share one thing, the Russian media would share another, which would be obvious to us now. But we take our media to a degree as gospel. This is what's happening. But there were stories they shared with me that made a lot more sense, if that makes mm-hmm. sense to what was happening. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't, to me, condone what's happening now. But it gave me a better understanding of the other perspective. And it gave me a little bit more, take it all with a bit more salt, um, a pinch of salt. So when the latest conflict arose, um, my interpreter from that trip to Siberia, I'd stayed in touch with and, and I'd consider her a dear friend, someone I'm very fond of. And she was messaging me a lot with the Russian line on what was happening in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult to take as it became clearer and clearer what, you know, what the truth is from our perspective. And I think it's probably history will bear out to, mm-hmm. to be the truth, but maybe I'm 99% sure now, who knows? But I was so conscious, having had that experience in 2014, of not saying you're wrong, of not putting her right in that sense, but listening and maybe questioning. And we got to the point where I said, look, this is what it, it appears is happening. I think you're being fed some propaganda. I don't know let's not talk about this. It it was so important that there was so much anger in her and what was happening that I felt that to continue talking about it would Mm -hmm. actually potentially harm the friendship. So we agreed to retain communication as best we could as social media is obviously less available in Siberia now. But we decided to do it without that conversation. But what you just Mm -hmm. said about the truth with a capital T really Mm -hmm. resonated with that story. Let's talk about your audiences. So you delivered the talk, as you say, in a lot of different communities, but a lot of Jewish communities, so synagogues and, uh, and community groups and so forth. How did people respond to it? And Equally, how have people responded to the book? Because it would go against their worldview and how they want to see things, surely. Yeah, we live in such a fractured world and uh, figuring out what is fact and what is actually perspective and belief is, I think, our biggest challenge going forward as, as a species, as humanity. <laughs> it really, really is, especially now when we're going to get more AI into mm. our lives. And that terrifies me. But so... The first two years, so when you create a storytelling piece, it's different from just a speaking lecture, right? So it's an art form. It's like a one woman show. And when you create a storytelling piece, it really gets formed in the relationship with the audience and the interaction with an audience because stories only exist in that space, in that relational space with the listener. So all the preparation and writing that I've done before was basically just creating the blueprint and the real work on forming and crafting the piece started when I started interacting with audiences. So the first two years, I had a questionnaire that audience members received afterwards to help me gauge what this is doing. And that helped me craft and figure out. And it was very tricky because I had to figure out what of people's reactions relates to really things that I need to change. Because I did not want it to be a political manifesto. And I did not want it to just say, oh, look at us, how we suffered. I really, really wanted to say, look at the human story behind the headlines. Look at the stories that that we don't get to hear growing up. We don't get to hear, you know, and equally on both sides, right? We don't get to hear the other side in this way. 
So that was what I really wanted. And so it was really hard to tell what of people's reactions is a response to something that I need to tweet and what of people's reactions is because of where they come from and who they are and their worldview and their DNA and their trauma. And let's not belittle the presence of trauma in their ability to even hear the other side. And it's one of the things I, I put into the show. It was one of the things that I asked my friend, you know, because when I was listening to her story, I was thinking about my grandmother and I, th I thought, if she was alive now, would she be able to sit at this kitchen table and even listen to this? Can those who lost so much have any room for the story of the other? I'm very aware of that. I'm very conscious of it, that when you are in the midst of pain, when you're in the midst of trauma, making room for somebody else's suffering is close to impossible. So that was very tricky. And I had different reactions. You know, I had the famous one. It was right at the beginning. I had a woman in Berkeley get up at the end of the show, because at the end of the show, I, I open it to Q&A uh, and scream that I should be ashamed of myself, that I'm a traitor, that I show war as fun and game for the Jews and only suffering for the Palestinians and that I should be ashamed of them. And she stormed out. And people afterwards came to me and tried to soften it and said, no, we do, you know, a lot of people said the opposite, blah, 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 blah. But it haunted me. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on what it is that made her react in that way. And it occurred to me that you know, because I'm an actress and, and I tell these four monologues, the story about the six day war, I tell from the perspective of the child, from the perspective of me as a nine year old. And like I told you before, that the fear was very much softened and mitigated by how we were protected by our parents. And so a lot of the childhood memories are of the excitement. We got to sleep with all the neighbors and, you know, Mr. Pesach was snoring in the You got to hear your neighbor from upstairs snoring at night. It was hilarious. You know, things like that. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I thought maybe that energy in how I was telling the story gave that impression that that war was not serious. And I had to start becoming more aware of what it is that I do unconsciously as a performer. And so I found ways to soften that and to ease into it and to kind of put it in context more as I was performing. So there's things like that. And I don't know if she would have seen the show afterwards, if she would have changed her reaction. That I, I'll never know. I've had reactions from, you know, Palestinians who got up and said, you've just told my story. And I've had Palestinians who just said, um, you have no, you know, you have no idea. And nobody in your family was, you know, you, you're telling the story as if only somebody in your family suffered and was killed. You're only talking about the suffering of the Jews and you're not saying anything about our suffering. So I kept hearing these. I had an elderly woman in a kibbutz in Israel when I was performing it in Hebrew there. And when I was talking about reactions from audiences, she got up and she says, that's true. You're only talking about the suffering of the Palestinians. You're saying nothing about us and all we've been through here with all the suicide bombers. And then afterwards, a whole bunch of people came up to me and said, please forgive her. She didn't mean to, you know, her granddaughter and her son were killed in suicide bombings. So I had to start accepting that I'm going to have people who are severely traumatized, who are living inside the trauma right now, for whom my story will always sound unbalanced. And my Palestinian friend, by the way, said that to me right off the bat. She said to me, listen, anybody who's emotionally involved is going to feel that their story is not being heard enough, that you're not giving voice to their story enough. But you just keep doing it. You're doing it for the Americans. Even before I performed it before audiences, she was always encouraging me and supporting me and felt like what I was doing was important. So at a certain point, I had to just let go of my anxiety about how people are going to react and trust that because I've been receiving these kind of reactions from both sides, I must be doing something okay and just go with what I can do. And I say that all the time. I'm not here to represent the suffering of the Jews. And I'm not here to represent the suffering of the Palestinians. I'm completely unqualified to do that. I'm here to tell this story about this woman 
who I met at the playground and her family and my story and my family. That's all I can do. I think that there's a number of really important points there in terms of a understanding the difference between what you're trying to achieve and what others might want from you, even if it's not what you set out to do, and therefore not taking, you know, listening, but not necessarily changing everything because it doesn't fit another person's desired approach. But also, you don't know what people are going through that guides their reaction. You use the term trauma a lot. I was in a comedy club many years ago. And the comedian was making jokes, as you're going to see about anything topical after a certain period of time, about the 7-7 seven, seven attacks in London, which was, you know, a, a, sometime after 9-11, but our experience, our similar experience. And two people stormed out. And we saw the comedian speaking to them during the interval. They'd stayed in the club. And mm-hmm. uh, it turned out one of them had lost her brother right, in those right. attacks. You don't know. You can't take on yourself to literally someone's response until you you know the full background. You do need to be gentle. You do need to be aware. And I try, you know, not to do harm. Yeah. You really try not to do harm. Completely, completely. And I think it's how we respond to these things. So we're coming towards the end, and there are a couple of things that I do want to talk to you about before we finish. So let's take everything you've learned in that fascinating journey (laughs) and just say, okay, what can we give people listening to this as tools that they can use when they get into discussions and debates which challenge their worldviews? So what has your experience taught you about how we should respond when someone has a different perspective to us or they challenge our perspective? Well, I'll tell you right out loud, debates don't work. (laughs) (laughs) Debate, debate actually serves to fortify our differences and open the gap. I do not know in the history of humanity, in my limited view of history of humanity, a single opinion that has been changed because someone was in a debate. I really don't. But people change and opinions change through experience and through listening to the experience of the other. And the experience of the other is the story. And so I am a very passionate believer that if we really want to connect with others, it doesn't matter what level, if it's building a team in a company, if it's working with leaders, we really need to find ways to create spaces, not for debates, but for sharing experiences and listening. And we are living in a culture that is increasingly not listener friendly. I have to tell you, I've been doing work in schools for over 30 years, and I've never been more depressed than I am today at what I'm seeing. We have a global severe mental health crisis. We have children who are being put in front of screens at an age where their brain is still developing. We're seeing chemical dependency on the stimulation that the screen is giving, which curtails the ability of the human mind to relax and to actually listen, to listen, to trust in your own imagination, to trust in your own creative power, to even be connected to your own life force. You're becoming more and more and more dependent on being stimulated and feeling alive by what it is that you're receiving from a screen. And that terrifies me. It terrifies me. And I see it with children. And these children are like this because adults are not listening to them anymore. And all we want, all every human wants is to be heard, to be seen, to be validated, to be loved, right? And so by offering spaces where we can just validate each other, we don't have to agree. We don't have to immediately find solutions. Can we create spaces where we can soften the edges. And if we are intentionally devoted to that, and we create spaces in our workplaces, in our communities, and our families to just soften the edges, and we're consistent with it, change comes. Change comes. Change is not something that we can engineer, and it's not something that we can force, and it's not something that we can predict, and it's not something that we can create. But we can create spaces for human beings to be together, 
not in front of screens, and to allow their limbic systems to regulate, allow their nervous system to regulate. And the only way that a human nervous system regulates is by being with another mammal, by being with another human. And that is what I feel we desperately need. And once we start listening, we will discover that what we think keeps us apart is not as big as what it seems. No, thank you so much for that. I, I had a couple of other questions, but I think that's such a powerful point to finish on. It also probably goes to my other two questions as well. <laughs> Before we started recording, we were talking about the situation in Israel at the time of recording, which is about five weeks before we publish, and things can change fast. We don't know where that is right now. But you made the point that I very much agree with that much of what is happening in Israel <clears throat> or has been happening in Israel is a mirror of what's happening in so many other countries around the world to one degree or another, including the, the countries both of us live in mm. at the moment. And I think mm. it goes to your point right now that we're not listening to each other. Uh, the use of social media and the hiding behind the screens has led to a discourse that you wouldn't have face-to-face -face in the right environment. Mm -hmm. You might shout at each other face-to-face -face in the wrong environment, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. if you sat down <clears throat> in a cordial place and started really exploring, it would be completely different. So I'm not going to ask the other two questions purely because that was such a powerful mm -hmm. point to finish on, and it brings that whole story back together. We need that space to talk. We need that space to learn from each other, and we need to do that. We need to listen and listen properly and, and give that the space to hear. Uh, the mm -hmm. stories. So now it was exactly what I expected. Fascinating, <laughs> thought-provoking, powerful, and really important to listen to. So thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And it was really a pleasure talking with you. You're a fabulous listener. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much to Noah for joining me. And it was easy to listen because Noah's a great storyteller. So I could just sit back and let Noah do the work on this podcast. And I'm sure you were as gripped and as engaged as, as I was. It's a powerful story. You probably gather that I recommend the book, A Land Twice Promise. It's really worth picking up and getting that full story. I skipped past the university story because there was so much to cover, but you know, there was that reminder of how important it was as part of the journey. So there's a lot more in the book than, than even in this hour long conversation. So do pick that up. If you have enjoyed this, please do share it on social media. Do rate and review on the podcast channels you use because it makes all the difference in attracting more people to hear stories like Noah's and to get that right message to more people. So thank you for doing that. Please tune in again next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.